in three, two, one. Looking to take your career to the next level? Establish credibility and become preferred in your market? Want to accelerate your results by becoming a recognized thought leader and sought after expert? Getting, crafting, and delivering a TEDx talk just might be what you're looking for. To help us understand the recipe for landing a TEDx talk, and he's done it seven times, is professional speaker, coach, and comedian, Frank King. Well, hi, Frank. Welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to have you as a guest. Well, I wouldn't be here, Michael, but it's part of my plea bargain. It was jail or spend time. <laughs> Community service. <laughs> yes, for the Canadian government. It was I'm, one of those things. Now, where are we talking to you from? In Eugene, Oregon. Oregon is oh. a lot like Canada, only no health insurance, more guns. Well, we're delighted to have you, Frank. And today we're going to talk about how to get, craft, and deliver a TEDx talk and how that can help your business or your career. But before we go there, give us a little background. Now, you've been a writer and a comedian for over 30 years now. How did you get into that? Well, actually, 35 years, Michael, but who's counting? In fourth grade, I told my first joke. The kids laughed. The teacher was hysterical. And I thought to myself, at that moment, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. Twelfth grade, there was a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before, and I did, and I won. And I told my mama, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And in my family, Michael, education's a big deal. She goes, no, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, moved to California, San Diego, and just so happens in San Diego, La Jolla, it's a suburb, there's a comedy store still there to this day, and they had open mic nights. And this is 1982, three, like that, four, I guess. And beginning of the comedy club boom. And so my first open mic night at the comedy store was the beginning of the end of my insurance career, which is why I moved to California with an insurance company. Also the beginning and the end of my first marriage, because my wife was not delighted to be married to a comedian because I was an insurance guy. And I don't blame her. She's a wonderful woman. But it was something, Michael, of a matrimonial bait and switch. She married an insurance guy, got a comedian. So <laughs> that's her heart. I know why she bailed out. I did my first open mic night, April 1st, 1984. In my first five minutes on stage, I heard a voice in my head, you're home. And my second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but I'm going to do it. And I think it was about, about 22 months later, December of 1985. I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 35 years, I'm going on the road to be a professional stand-up comedian. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figuring, Michael, she would go, oh, heck no. And she goes, yeah. So we left, gave up our apartment, our jobs, and we were on the road together 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home. And then I got a, a job in radio for a time. The two kinds of people in radio, Michael, people who've been fired, people who are going to be fired. <laughs> <laughs> I took a number one morning show and drove it to number six in 18 months. A friend of mine goes, you didn't just drive that in the ground. You drove that thing into Middle Earth. And I did. And by the time I got done with radio, the comedy club boom had busted. But my act was very clean. So I realized I could make the jump to corporate comedy. As they say, the rubber chicken circuit, the after dinner, after lunch. So I did that from 1995 until 2007 or eight during the last recession. And then speaking bookings dropped off precipitously, 80% practically overnight. My wife and I lost everything we had worked for in 25 years uh, of our marriage. Nightmare. Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Oh, no. Literally. Spoiler alert for your yeah. audience. I did not pull the trigger. Uh, we usually <laughs> get the nervous laugh. Well, we're glad audience. you didn't. We're glad you didn't. Me too. 
There's no coming back from that. But oddly, coming that close to ending my life, actually, I now speak on suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. Because when I got done, when the recession was over, meeting planners and speakers bureau said to me, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you for 45 minutes of just comedy anymore. you got to teach our audience something. And I'm like, what am I going to teach them? And then I thought about my family history, Michael. It's generational depression and suicide. My grandmother, my great aunt, my mother died of suicide. More nuts in my family than in a squirrel poop. And the fact that I'd come so close, I thought if I get some training and certification in suicide prevention, I can speak on that. So I did. Second problem, second hurdle, mm-hmm. Michael. I've been a comedian for two and a half decades. How do I convince meeting planners and speakers bureaus that I can do something serious? My wife said to me, do a TEDx talk. I said famously, what's a TEDx talk? Just so happens, I got a, an invitation from a TEDx in Vancouver, British Columbia that week. Would you like to apply? Yes, I would. So I applied. Right. I got the audition. I flew up to audition on my own dime because TEDx doesn't pay anything. I auditioned and I got it on my first application. Talk about spoiled. And that one led to two more. I got invited to two more. I got calls and they said, do you have any more mental health ideas worth spreading? Oh, yeah. So I got two and that made three. And then the next four I applied for and I got through the regular application process. So, and each one is on mental health, one aspect or another. So each one solidifies my brand as the mental health comedian. Well, that sounds fascinating. Now, as a comedian and a writer, let's go into some of your chronology there because you're very successful at doing that. You appeared on most of the shows you've written for the best of the best and appeared with the best of the best. Let's do some name drop and talk about some of the highlights. Well, I wrote jokes for The Tonight Show for 20 years. Back in the day when Jay Leno was just the permanent guest host, right? Johnny Carson, who was the host, would say to his staff on a Friday night, I'm taking next week off, which meant Jay had four nights, four monologues, 18 jokes a monologue to create over the weekend. So he started hiring road comics like me, and we became what they call fax writers. We'd fax in jokes. I'd fax in a dozen or two dozen jokes a day. Now, the dream was, Michael, because this happened to a couple of guys that when Jay got the show for real, that he would bring you into NBC and you'd be an on-site writer in the Guild, the Writers Guild. And so never happened for me, but there were some people that it happened for. And then when Jay got the job for real, he let most of the contract labor, the fax writers go, but kept some of us on. So I rode that horse until he left for CNBC. I don't know how many ever years ago that was. Nice guy, by the way, Leno. When I had my first open heart surgery, one of the other writers told him, Frank's in the hospital, just had a valve job. And the first call I got when I got to my regular room out of ICU was Leno. Hey, heard you had a valve job, heart surgery. Good thing you didn't have it in LA. They take it out and leave it out. Take a couple of weeks off. So he was a great guy. So on that 2,629 night road trip, I worked with Adam Sandler, Dennis Miller, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, Rosie, Ellen, pretty much everybody who's now... famous and opened up for the Beach Boys, for Neil Sedaka, for Randy Travis, because they often have comics open up for bands. Amazing adventure. Seinfeld, we had dinner one night. Now, you made humor on the health conditions and on the mental illness part of your act on the humor side, didn't you? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's not jokes. I don't joke about depression and thoughts of suicide. Nothing funny about that, but I do tell personal funny stories. For example, I was doing a keynote recently. A friend of mine came up afterwards. He heard me say during the keynote, I didn't pull the trigger. So he said to me, Michael, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? 
I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? So that's a story I tell every time I do my keynote. It's funny, personal anecdotes. I had a guy call the other day. He said, Frank, I'm sorry I'm late calling. I didn't mean to leave you hanging. I said, do you want to rephrase? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, personal stories. Right. Right? And somebody asked me, does being a comedian keep you from getting a booking as a suicide prevention speaker? I said, no, man, you got it backwards. They want the lived experience, the backstory. They want the learning objectives, teach them something. And the fact I can do it with humor, there's a reason they call it comic relief, Michael. I mean, that's a dark subject. <laughs> so if you can give them some organic, tasteful, well-placed, break from the tragic, every so often, it makes it that much more powerful. It's interesting. It seems like within the comedian world, we start looking like the John Belushi's of the world. We've lost a lot of great people, and a lot of them suffered from mental illness. And in those times, they didn't really talk about it. For instance, a lot of comics are manic depressives. We see that. And I'm speaking as a generalization. You mm -hmm. would know more on an insight end of it. As professional speakers, our pathology is a need to be loved by strangers. So if you have both of those, <laughs> it kind of fits both ways, right? We get in front of an audience and we go, I hope they like me. Do you see that in the profession itself and not naming names, but is that a condition that exists or is that too broad of a generalization? No, I do believe that entertainers, comedians especially, have a higher rate of suicide than the average human being. And I think we lost a comedian this past month that was 29 years old, I think. And they finally released the cause of death. And it was, and he was very successful. Oftentimes, depression is not situational. It's in your DNA. It's genetic. And I imagine that was his case. Uh, I did a whole TEDx talk called Mental with Benefits, The Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Because I kept noticing what you've noticed is that all these very talented people, actors, writers, comedians, whatever, they all suffer from some one issue or another. And I thought to myself, this cannot be a coincidence. And sure enough, there's a laundry list of people who are notable, wealthy, famous, accomplished, who have a mental illness or other. Alexander Hamilton, there's a book called The Bipolar Advantage, and it begins with the story of Alexander Hamilton, who, going by historical records, they believe he was living with bipolar. He had these manic episodes. He was hypersexual, up for days writing, and then crash and burn. And so that's very typical of someone who is living with bipolar disorder. So I believe you are correct. That's why I did the TEDx talk. Right. Now, your wife encouraged you, you went after TEDx, you got accepted right away. And going through that process, and you obviously nailed it out of the gate, First time, and that doesn't happen for people who want a TEDx talk. Oh, I wish it did. Right. And on your TEDx talk, you talked about some of those conditions. I believe in your first TEDx talk, you actually yeah. talked about grandparents, the genealogy. And give us a brief description of how that worked out. Yes, I talked about my grandmother. Who My mother found my grandmother had died by suicide. My mother and I found my great aunt. I was four years old. I screamed for days. Oh, that's terrible. And it's called generational depression and suicide. And get this, Michael, at 55 years old... On that TEDx stage in Vancouver, BC, I came out of the mental health closet as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew. My family, wow. my wife, my friends, because people with mental illness often, A, covered up, B, are great actors, don't want to burden anybody with it. So I decided it was time for me to come out oh. as depressed and suicidal. Yeah. As I say when I do my keynote, I let my freak flag fly and rally my tribe. And that's the power of doing that, by the way, being vulnerable on stage, especially as a man. Yeah. Men don't generally reveal that kind of emotional trauma. It gives people in the audience permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences. I mean, I set aside a half an hour to an hour after every keynote because I say to the audience, look, we're going to do general Q&A. And then when we're done, if you've got a question, a story or whatever to share with me, you don't want to share with everybody. I'll hang out and take them individually. Mm. And sometimes it's two people. Sometimes it's eight. 
Well, that's the whole purpose of TED Talks and TEDx Talks particularly is to have ideas that are worth sharing and that impact the world and give people tools, if you will, strategies to help them in their own lives. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And back to my conversation with professional speaker, coach, and comedian, Frank King. Now, since that first talk, when you started incorporating that into your keynote presentations, your programs with corporations, you've actually had where your message has really saved their lives is the best way to describe it. Yes, I have two conditions. One's called major depressive disorder, mm-hmm. depression, relatively common, garden variety, and something called chronic suicidal ideation, which is not even in the big book of mental illnesses yet, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM. Sure. It means that for people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I tell the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. I did that once Mm. at a college presentation. Young woman comes up afterwards, thanked me for my keynote, and then said, but it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, you know your story about the car? Get it fixed. Buy a new one or kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I did not know that had a name. I thought it was just me and I was some kind of freak. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone and I wept. Mm. There's a ROI for you. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I remember my wife and I caught your act in Utah for a worldwide internet presentation that they were doing with one of the comedy shows. Rye Bar Comedy. That's what it was. And I remember you were on your way to Ohio, I believe. And I think you had an experience there too. We were chatting after the show. We had a chance to visit and you had an experience there. Tell us about that one. Yes. Construction has the highest rate of suicide of any occupation. About a thousand people die by accident, Michael, every year in construction. Over 5,000 die by suicide in construction, meaning you're five times more likely to jump off the building than fall off. So I had spoken in an association conference and one of the companies there brought me back in to speak. I did four keynotes in one day. Wow. And one of them was on site. There's a hospital there and they're building a new wing. They're also updating the old wing. 180 construction workers. I tell my story. After I get done, this gentleman comes up mid-20s and he's crying so hard he can't speak. So I wait. And when he can gather himself. Yeah, he got himself collected there. He says to me that he's lost three people close to him in the last year, including into violence, including his daughter who died in his arms. Oh, wow. And that he hasn't slept in two days. He's having very much difficulty sleeping. And every day he goes to work on the fifth floor of this building that they are redoing. He's thinking about jumping. And he's never told anybody this. Family, friends, construction worker, whatever. Keep it silent. So I march him over to the HR guy and say, look, you need to help him right now. Take him to a mental health facility. Get him evaluated, perhaps medicated, because he is circling the drain. 
And as far as I know, I just emailed the woman who booked me the other day that that young man is still alive, but he was suffering. And then he saw me speak and be vulnerable. That's the power of starting the conversation. Yeah, I think it's really important. And something I learned this year, Frank, after watching right and then doing a little homework was, and I think this is important for listeners generally, and then we'll move into our TEDx talks and how to get those in the formula you have, because you've now done seven of them, I believe, and you've helped countless others also get them. But people don't commit suicide, they die by suicide. And that's an important distinction. Why is that? Well, because the word commit has a lot of baggage. You commit a crime, you commit adultery, you commit a sin. So the last thing suicide needs is more right. stigma. Got They're it. trying to change, slowly but surely changing the vernacular to die by. It's kind of like addiction, alcohol addiction, drug addiction. They're shifting it to substance abuse disorder. Yeah. Makes Again, sense. just to take the stigma, some of the sting or sure. stigma. Out of yeah, it makes sense. All right. So you've done your TED Talk. You're on stage. Now, TEDx Talks have a structure to them. For example, they're only 18 minutes or less. Uh, less. What are some of the other requirements in order to qualify for a TEDx talk? Well, anybody can do a TEDx talk. They are looking simply for ideas worth spreading. Right. So if you're a speaker, great. If you're not a public speaker, but you've got a great idea worth spreading, great. What they really like, Michael, is somebody who not only has a great idea worth spreading, but a great backstory to go along with it. Some messes and stresses, the hero or heroine's journey. That's usually what the first part of a TEDx is. You talk about all the stuff that happened to you. And then the middle part of it is generally, here's what I learned. And the last part, and this is what they emphasize, what are you going to teach the audience? So you teach the audience a lesson. In my case, I teach the audience the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to say and not to say, what to do and not to do, and how to find resources. In each of my TEDx's, I teach them something in that last third. If you get an audition for TEDx, one of the questions they almost always ask you is, great idea, Michael. What are you going to teach the audience? Right. So what are the key takeaways, right? Yeah. People think that their story is a TEDx. No, your story is a part of a TEDx. So it can be anywhere from six to 18 minutes. The individual TEDx event decides how much time you get. One of my speakers got a TEDx. They said, you got seven minutes. He negotiated 10. And when he got on stage, he did 12 and they were fine. So it's up to the committee. You don't pay to do a TEDx. That's the good news. The bad news is they don't pay you. Right. When I did the one in Vancouver, I had to fly myself up, put myself in a hotel and fly myself home. So there's no money changing hands in a TEDx itself. Now, people ask, what's the difference between a TED and a TEDx? TED is once a year in Vancouver, British Columbia, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Al Gore, Renee Brown. It's the big, big three to seven day festival. You can do a TEDx and end up with a spot on the TED stage, Brene Brown, famously. Yeah, it could be a nice stepping stone. And she did extremely well with that. Phenomenal. Yes, and built a rather lucrative speaking career based on the TEDx. That's nuts and bolts. Yeah, and it does go to the trust and credibility because when people see you on a talk, it's a great way to establish your credibility, position yourself as a thought leader, and you get an awesome video, as you say, in your coaching programs. You get something you can use for your marketing, using it for keynote presentations and going from there, right? Yes, and you put that thumbnail on your homepage on your website. Now, there's typically about 100, based on my homework, there are about 100 applications at any time for the spot, and they usually only pick a couple. So how do you make your topic stand out? Is there a strategy to it? Yes, there can be 100, 200, Seattle and Marin County get over 500. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. So my fourth TEDx talk was called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. 
and they called me and I said, am I getting an audition? And they said, no, we love the title subtitle and the idea so much. You are going to be doing a TEDx for us. Wow. Which told me, Michael, catch their attention is the first hurdle to get over. So having been a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years and a comic for 35 yeah. and being creative, which, by the way, I believe is simply the flip side of my depression and thoughts of suicide is my creativity and imagination. Same brain. So. When I work with a client, we try to come up with title and a subtitle. The title is English words. We all know the meaning of, but you really don't know what the idea is. So you're forced to read the subtitle. Right. And if they like the subtitle, maybe they'll read the three sentence summary. And if they like that, maybe they'll read why you're the person to do it. What we're trying to do is to get them read farther down the application. And the farther they go, because out of 100 or 200 applications, they select usually four dozen auditioners. So then they probably ask you to send them a five minute video overview. And if they like that, then they do a Zoom, you interview over Zoom with the selection committee. And then they pick 12 people, generally 12 to 15, to appear in that big red dot of carpet. So that's kind of how the process works. But I believe the linchpin is making sure that whatever you put in those first couple of blanks on that application, you got to stop the scroll because they're looking at these online. And if I have 100 applications to go through, Michael, I'm not looking for the first reason to book you for an audition. I'm looking for the first reason not to. And those are mistakes. And you talk about that. Some people submit multiple applications. And so what are some of the mistakes people make? I know in your website, you give here's six mistakes people make, but let's talk about a few of them. What are some of the mistakes that they make when they just try and do this themselves? Number one, and I've been told by several TEDx committees, the number one mistake is too much. Yep. Either too many ideas, because all they want is one idea worth spreading, or too much about the one idea. They don't want a thesis. That's why they force you to do things like, give us a three-sentence summary, or give us a summary in 240 characters, which is not much. My feeling is they figure, if you can sum it up, Michael, in three sentences, you can do it in 18 minutes. If you can't, then you probably can't cover it in 18 minutes. Third one is creativity, not creative enough. There was a woman who hired another TEDx coaching company, a legitimate company that right. gets people TEDx's. They charge more than I do, but that's another story. She submitted 80, that's eight zero applications, nothing, not even an audition. She wow. called me crying, Frank, what am right. I going to do? I said, Amy, send it to me. It's a good idea. you got a book on Amazon, a bestseller in a difficult category on that topic. I just can't imagine. Send me the applications. Send me the stuff you're putting in the applications. Right. She sent it to me. I called her. I said, can I work this over? She goes, sure. What have I got to lose? I worked it over, added my little creative touches. Sure. Within five applications, she got TEDx Biggest Street in Boston within five after having 80. So that told me that again, right. the linchpin, the first hurdle to get over is it's got to be creative. You know what it is, Michael? You, you're in marketing. Right. It's a marketing pitch to the TEDx Selection Committee pure and simple. Well, I think where you have an advantage is as a comedian and writer, you have to learn to take complex subjects, break them down to their most simplest terms. And I know in your coaching program, you talk about you help your clients get it down to a 10 to 15 word elevator pitch for their idea. Yeah. And which really stems from jokes, right? Humor. When you're writing jokes, you want to set it up, boom, punchline, fast and furious. Is that the normal process for creating some humor? Absolutely correct. Because most comics, new comics, because I've taught comedy classes, right. they'll bring me a joke and it's a whole like a notebook page written. <laughs> Telling the whole story. Sure. Yeah. And I redact at least two thirds of that because there's stuff in there that doesn't move the narrative forward. I've had clients say to me, look, the TEDx committee wants a thousand words on this topic. The best I could do is I've got 2000 words. Can you edit this? Right. I said, sure. 
Here's the greatest compliment an editor could ever have, Michael. I give them back the thousand word document. They call me and go, I can't tell what you took out. Bingo. It didn't belong. So I spent a great deal of my time editing the elevator pitch, the three cent summary, the five minute Zoom audition. The whole TEDx process, Michael, is an editing process. First, you have to select an idea. And most people have more than one. A passion. Passion is very important. That's another mistake people make. Right. They don't have a passion for the topic they're submitting. They're just submitting any topic or something they think they know something about. Yeah, or they think it would catch their attention. All mine are on mental health because I live that. It's in my DNA. Right. Out of all seven, they're all on mental health and touch on those issues. Yes, because in part because I want them to be reinforced my branding over and over and over again. Yeah, smart. So lack of passion is another one. Yeah. And then selecting the wrong TEDx coach. I'm not saying they got to hire me, but unlike most coaches, the other coaching companies do one live one-on-one and then group sessions. I do strictly one hour a week, one-on-one, submit an application or two and work on the speaker marketing. So that's a differentiating. Yeah. And I checked the background and checking you out for the podcast and doing a little research. There's plenty of people who have done one talk and now they're experts at it, which they do have some insights. That's for sure. But it could have been just lucky. You've done it seven times and you've helped dozens get their talks doing. And I know in your coaching programs, you virtually keep coaching until they get on the board or get something in there. So you're always generous with your work. Yep. It's until death do us part. I tell them, look, we work on getting you a TEDx until we do where we both die trying. Now I've had two clients say to me, wait a minute, hold on. You're suicidal. I need a codicil to that contract that says you won't kill yourself before I get one. That's right. Excellent. Sometimes your applications were accepted, like you say, on the first try, and sometimes maybe five times or multiple times. How many times have you applied before being accepted? What's your record on number of applications and that persistence? And then we'll talk about topics. I want to know there are certain topics that appeal because TEDx seems to have themes associated with it. So it's finding a topic that's maybe aligned with that theme. How do we get there? And you talk about the talk finds you. Meaning you didn't go after TEDx, the talk found you, the subject was there. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. What's your worst case scenario for you? Well, so far I've submitted one 63 times. I've gotten three auditions, just haven't made it over the hump into that big red dot, but I'm not giving up. That's another mistake people make, Michael. I have several clients who I applied a couple of times locally, didn't get it, gave up. Well, it's a numbers game. They're 200 plus TEDx's in the US every year and 1200 worldwide. And one of my clients did one in England. So you have to keep applying and applying. And TEDx doesn't really have a list of things. They have a list of things they don't want. They don't want a motivational speech. They don't want an inspirational speech. They're four square against coaches because it seems like- Everybody in their dog's a coach, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of those folks, they took a weekend intensive and became a life coach. So yeah. Yeah. So those are things that they give you. They're pretty upfront about what they don't want. Sure. What they do want is most of them, 65, 70% have a theme. Like the one that actually, the organizer actually called me. I found me on LinkedIn and called me and said, I know you coach speakers. Do you have speakers who would like to apply? Do I? But their theme is leave a mark. In other words, leave a legacy. So what we do is we take whatever the speaker has as a topic. We see if we can make that fit, leave a legacy. And they usually broad like that or leave a mark. Well, you mentioned passion and having a passion for it and obviously living it or being a product of the product. You can speak to it. What topics work best? I know if we're at a TEDx presentation, the topics are all over the map. Like you say, from five minutes, seven minutes to 18 minutes. Are there some that work best? And then how do you determine the right topic? 
Well, and therein lies the power of doing a TEDx, especially for speakers. I spend a great deal of time in the first couple of sessions with a speaker sorting through their passions because most have more than one passion. And in the speaking business, Jane Atkinson, she's a speaker coach, says, pick a lane. So one of the things that a TEDx forces a speaker to do, which I think is very valuable, pick a lane. So the speaker and I decide, what is your number one passion? Now, oftentimes I'll say to them, hey, that's going to be a great second TEDx. But this one, this is the one you're most excited about, passionate about, can't wait to share. So let's do this one first and then work on that one second. Again, it's a great vehicle for speakers to narrow their focus. Because I believe, Michael, as a speaker, the riches are in the niches. Well said. Love it. I had several speakers. Steal that one. Yeah. Yeah, please. I did. Have a networking speech and a cardiac comedy speech and right. a motivation speech. But January 1st, 2018, I looked around my community, fellow Chamber of Commerce members, who are the most successful and why. And I realized the most successful in my community are people who do one thing and they do it extremely well. And they are the thought leader expert in that category. My goal for my speaking clients is so they're no longer a commodity in the speaking business. It's a long game. Right. But in their topic, when people go looking, they're not just looking for any speaker on that topic. They're looking for the person I'm working with on. They're no longer a commodity. Yeah, they are. Yeah. If you can deal with a generalist or a specialist, your price is the same. You're going to pick the specialist every time. Yes. And the meeting planner. Same thing. When you go to my website and I talk to my clients about this all the time, when you go to my suicide prevention website, it says in bold letters, are you looking for a suicide prevention speaker and trainer? Everything on that site screams, that's all I do. Now, I also have a TEDx coaching business, but that's an entirely separate website. Different messaging, absolutely. Exactly, because what you want to do is you want to join the conversation in the meeting planner's head. The best it ever was, Michael, I did an agricultural keynote. Right. Farmers have a high rate of suicide. I asked the meeting planner how she found me. She goes, Frank, I typed in suicide prevention, agriculture, speakers. And you came up and came up. And she said, so I went to your website and it was really freaky. The first thing on your website says, hey, I'll bet you were chosen to find just the right suicide prevention speaker for your agricultural function. She said, I'm thinking to myself, how does he know this? I'm joining the conversation in the meeting planner's mind. Entrepreneur of any kind. Yeah. You need to pick a lane. If you got an auto body shop, that's all you should do. Well, to tag on to that, I'm with you 100%. And I love the saying, we always believe smaller the niche or niche, bigger the market. Because who does the marketing or the niche or the market. It's kind of like the dentist and the orthodontist who makes more money, the orthodontist, but who does the yeah. marketing for the orthodontist, the dentist. dentist. So to, to get the market talking about you, you pick your lane, like you said, and make that your niche and, and stay in your lane. Yes. And no side hustles. No, I've got a, one of my clients <laughs> on shiny object syndrome. Right. Oh yeah. Chase them. I'm guilty of that yeah. one myself. I'm guilty. Yeah. Let's do this. I'm very formulaic. I believe in formulas and processes, and I know you do too. You've done this seven times and then literally dozens of others. So you've developed a step-by-step recipe, a process by which significantly helps your clients land these TEDx spots. Tell us about the process from a generalization point of view. You don't have to get away the secret sauce, but what's the kind of the yeah. steps you take? Say I'm one of your new clients and you do offer 30-minute consultations, and we'll give that information at the end. It's very generous of you. But let's say you just landed me and we're having that conversation. In that process, what kind of things are we going to do in our process with the final product being a TEDx talk? Well, a guy called me today and we chatted and I said, look, this is what I'm going to do. Send you a coaching contract and I'm going to send you a form, TEDx information submission form. On that form are the most frequently asked questions that appear on a TEDx application. I said, so you fill that out so that when we begin doing applications, 
you've already cobbled together the answers and I've already helped you edit that. And every time we fill out an application, we save all our work because the questions tend to repeat. So after half a dozen applications, it's a lot of cut, paste, and edit, cut, paste, and edit. So we can do one or two applications an hour when we get together. I also help them find, I find the application links because Ted doesn't make it easy because I think they want to keep the number of people who apply down. So about every 10 days, I send out a list of half dozen, dozen applications, links. Right. So we get together, you fill out the form, we begin filling out applications one or two a week. And then you say to me, Michael, I'll ask you, well, listen. My program is land and leverage at TEDx. So what do you want to do with the TEDx? Well, I want more speaker bookings. I want to raise my fees. Great. All right, let's talk about speaker marketing. Do you have a website speaker only? Do you have a one page? Do you have podcasts? Are you guesting on a couple of podcasts a week in your topic area? So it's part TEDx applications and part speaker marketing. So that the day the TEDx posts, the speaker is loaded and ready and has every piece of the puzzle together to be turnkey for a meeting planner or speaker's bureau to book them. So anyway, we do the application. They get an audition. Great. I prepare them for the audition. We've already covered the first question they're going to ask you is, that's a great idea, Michael. What are you going to teach the audience? You have a list. We put together bullet points. They're going to ask you, what are the action items? You have a list that you and I have created of the action items, things people are going to do right away after they hear you speak. Let's say you get it then they're going to assign you a volunteer coach. And you and I, the volunteer coach, cobble together the best TEDx presentation. Once it's together, then you and I talk about, we need to find you stages where you can get up and do this talk, usually virtual on summits and things and podcasts, where you can do this, record it, practice. So when you get when you step into that big red dotted carpet, it ain't the first time you've run through this. Right. It's sort of like open mic nights for comics, only open mic for speakers. And I've got a laundry list of summits always looking for speakers on a variety of topics. It's virtual, but still, there are humans on the other end. It's recorded, so we can critique it. And then again, once you've done the TEDx, now I also tell them, Michael, TED has three choices when you do a TEDx. Post it, post it with an editorial note, or not post it. I didn't know that early on. So for my last TEDx, I said to the committee, hey, can I be a sponsor? Can I donate a videographer to this event? And he'll record everyone, give you the raw footage, which means, Michael, if they had not posted my, my TEDx talk, right. I've got a bootleg copy in 4K that I can't, I can't put it on YouTube, No, but I can put it on Vimeo and slice and dice it. So oh, well, it ends up giving a video. Well, it seems like in your application, it seems like in the process, you come up with a couple of ideas. And before you've developed the whole TEDx talk, you're actually seeing what they're biting on. So you're pitching the general concept. And then if they're biting on that, you're expanding as you go along. Because in your programs, I know you talk about you've got to have a strong opening. You need a strong closing. You've got some good stories in there. And also key takeaways are a call to action yeah. right, in the process. And so I think that's the process that you're talking about here, right? Yes, and here's the good news. And I told the gentleman I talked to before we got online, I said, here's some good news, man. You do not have to write the TEDx talk before you get the TEDx talk. We have to just come up with really good answers to the most frequently asked questions. I said, now there are exceptions. Seattle and Marin County, because they get so many apps, I believe, Mm -hmm. they require a full text copy of your TEDx attached to the application. I think they do that because who's got that line around? But most of the time, you don't have to write the talk. I'm a comedian by trade, Michael. Right. I have no work ethic. Why would I <laughs> cobble together a talk that nobody's going to buy? Right. So yeah, what we do is we tweak the answers as we go along. And when they bite, and when you get the audition, and when you get the talk, now we start with the outline. Give me an outline. Okay. 
That's the process. And I help you with the outline. Right. You go through every step in your process to do it. And one thing I was curious about, and I know people ask the question, do you have to have slides? Do you use slides? I'm not good at that. And I know you address that in your program, but also eventually you've got to memorize this thing. Is there any tidbits or strategies you use for helping? If it's a 15, 18 minute talk, how do you memorize that? Well, you memorize it because they do not allow you to have notes. You do not have to use PowerPoint slides, but I recommend it. Now, slides, if you have 12 slides, let's say, right, you should have no more than 24 words on those slides. It should be images that reinforce whatever you're talking about. Cues, yeah. Yes, and the beauty of that is, because I've had this happen, I get lost, and I don't <laughs> yeah. know what the next thing I'm supposed to say is, so I fire the next slide, I look at it while they look at it and go, oh, and go right into whatever right, the next right. So it's a great mnemonic device. Yeah, so the cues are good without all the text slides. And I write on my hand a macro outline. Oh, interesting. Roman numerals are one word for each, because if it's going to break down for you, I learned this in comedy, if your brain's going to go offline, it's going to be between the first point you're making and the second point you're making, because it's not always a segue that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so you can have notes, but you can run on your hand. Well, you raise a good point too. And TEDx does minor editing. They'll remove ums and ahs from the videos and anything that's major without editing the message or the context of the message. Isn't that right? Yes. However, they have final say on what goes on YouTube. So they could take things out. I mean, you don't get a say. If they're going to post it on YouTube, they generally they try to leave it intact. Sure. And something that your audience should know is when you do a TEDx, you own the content, you own the intellectual property, they own that video. It goes on their YouTube channel, which makes it a little more difficult to market because the best you can do is, well, not the best you could do. I can show you how to grab that, download it, slice and dice it and use it for your marketing, but you can't put it up on your YouTube channel intact because YouTube's algorithm will tumble to it and they'll say, look, you got to take that down, but it goes on their channel. Right. So now, I have a source, actually. I can get you a million legitimate views. Wow. You're going to pay for them. Sure. But I've got a client who's got 1.1. He had 12,000 views, and then he hired the guy that I recommended, who I used first to make sure it worked. I bought a small package, and they came through, and then some. He's now at 1.1 million. He started at 12,000, and it wow. helped him get a second TEDx talk. That's amazing. Well, and our time's coming to an end here, and you've been really generous with this. And first of all, I really love that you showed the vulnerability and that connection within your talks, and people can go see them online, obviously, the TEDx talks. Frank King, if people want to get hold of you to see if their idea is worth sharing and they can qualify for this and just have that consultation, because you do offer a free 30 minute. Yep. We've got the website is yourtedxcoach.com. Is that the best place to find you? Yes. And if you put an email address, you can you get a calendar link and you can register for the free 30-minute TEDx coaching session. And here's the thing, Mike, in 30 minutes, I can teach you how to do a TEDx, how to apply, how to audition. I give you the 411, just the nuts and bolts. Right. Well, where I think uh, it's yeah. helpful is those who really want to move this forward and see it as a an opportunity to enhance their careers, their professional image, their branding. Great way to do it. You know, as a professional speaker, I've made a career of that for 30 years. This one makes me nervous. I have to tell you, it's like doing stand-up. And I think you even tell a story I saw somewhere in one of your videos where being scary is doing a TEDx talk. Talk to people going, oh my goodness, I could never do that. And so it's very, very yeah. interesting, but you seem to have mastered the process. No, I'm still nervous because several reasons. And by the way, bear in mind, when I opened for Randy Travis, it was in Michigan, it was on a weekend. I did two shows, 5,000 people each show, didn't break a sweat. To do 18 minutes of material I've written over the last six months and haven't delivered that many times, I was sweating, yeah. 
And in part because it's going to live forever on YouTube. (laughs) And you help them get over the heebie-jeebies, right? Like you have processes in order to get the butterflies flying in formation so they can actually make it work. That's one of the reasons we do a lot of stages. We get as many repetitions of it as possible before you land on that big red dot of carbon. Got it. Well, Frank King, this has been a real pleasure. I've seen you speak, seen you do your comedy act, and people would do well to go uh, seek you out. And you're very generous with your time. So appreciate you being here on the show. And we look forward to seeing you again, Frank, and having you back as a guest. Oh, my pleasure, Michael. And I've got an idea. September is International Suicide Prevention Month. So if you've got a spot on your calendar where we could wedge me in. Let's do it. Let's do it. No, we'll make it happen. Excellent. Frank, pleasure. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.